2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 to 23. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, Go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal and Carmen. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. When David was told that it was the men from Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to them to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul your master by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favour because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul your master is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. Meanwhile, Abner son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth son of Saul and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Ashuri and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zeruiah, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool and one group on the other side. Then Abner said to Joab, Let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So they stood up and were counted off. Twelve men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and twelve for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. So, in that, so that place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hazarim. The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. The three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that you, Azahel? It is, he answered. Then Abner said to him, Turn aside to the right or to the left. Take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. But Azahel would not stop chasing him. Again, Abner warned Azahel, Stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? But Azahel refused to give up the pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Azahel's stomach, and the spear came out through his back. He fell there and died on the spot. And every man stopped when he came to the place where Azahel had fallen and died. And now we're reading chapter 3, verses 6 to 18. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now Saul had had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. So he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul 
and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you accuse me of an offence involving this woman? May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath, and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me, and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Good, said David. I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go back home. So he went back. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, For some time you have wanted to make David your king. Now do it. For the Lord promised David, by my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Our next reading is from Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 to 56. Before I read that, I'll quickly pray. Dear Lord, thank you for speaking to us through your word in the Bible. Help us to listen carefully to your word. Please help Jeff to proclaim Jesus faithfully and lovingly in his sermon. Lord, please use your word to change our hearts, minds, and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 26, verses 47 to 56. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled in, that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Uh, it'll help enormously to have the 2 Samuel passage open in front of you as we work our way through tonight. Uh, how does someone rise to power? Whenever you see someone in authority in our world, there's always a story of how they got there. Uh, sometimes it's through hard work and talent Sometimes it's a Steve Bradbury type situation, they were just in the right place at the right time and they skated on through. But in the long history of the world, uh, the two main ways are by politics and violence. 
the deal and the sword, winning influence and exerting pressure. Uh, As we prayed tonight, we, we see it in the world around us. We see it in the military coup that's just happened in Myanmar. Uh, there, uh, one of the, the leaders, uh, a general, uh, didn't want to step down, and so he takes power by force. Uh, we see it in politics around us uh, when you read in the newspaper about old mates being parachuted in to safe seats. Uh, we see it all around us, uh, even closer to home, in the back-scratching of business deals, um, in dodgy university postings and research grants. Uh, How do you get ahead? Politics and violence. The deal and the sword. And 2 Samuel 2 to 5 is the story of how David rises to power. How he goes from being one player in a post-Saul power struggle to being the unrivaled ruler over a united Israel. Last week, uh, chapter 1 left us in this power vacuum, uh, left after King Saul's death. And this section starts with David being anointed king over just one tribe, just his own tribe of Judah. But it finishes seven years later with David as the ruler of the whole nation. So what happens in that seven-year span for David to rise to power? Uh, Well, on the surface... It's the story of politics and violence, the deal and the sword. But underneath that, uh, this passage wants to tell us that David's rise to power is because of God's promise. Because God has promised to bless his people through his king. That God installs his king despite the politics and violence of the people around him. Um, If you're a fan of political dramas or kind of like military movies, uh, you'll want to go home and read through these chapters, two to five, all the way through. Um, It's got hand-to-hand combat, uh, murder, sex, betrayal, marriage alliances, revenge, evil henchmen, and three, that is three people stabbed in the stomach. It's got so many threads uh, running through it. We're just going to trace those three. How do you rise to power? The deal the sword and the promise. The deal, the sword and the promise. So firstly, politics, the deal. Uh, David has been anointed king over Judah and so his first move is to extend an olive branch to the other side, uh, to the men of Jabesh Gilead, there in uh, chapter 2, verse 4. These were the most pro-Saul guys in all Israel. Uh, They were the ones who risked their lives to mount this kind of SAS incursion um, to get Saul's body back off the Philistines after he died. And here's the message that David sends to them. Uh, There in verse 5, he says, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness. And I too will show you the same favour because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. See what he's saying? Let me be your new king. See, David knows what he needs to do. He needs to unite the nation, and so he extends this olive branch to them. He seeks peace. He says, uh, you know, come over to me. 
Let me be your king. David acts as the peacemaker here. But look who else is trying to grab power in the wake of Saul's death. Step forward, Abner. Uh, Abner was the commander of King Saul's army and really in these chapters he's the political animal. He's the the one who's all about the backroom deals. Uh, Look what he does there in verses 8 and 9. He takes Saul's son, Ishbosheth, and makes him king. Abner is the kingmaker, he's the power broker, the one pulling the strings, and Ishbosheth is the puppet here. And so it's on uh, the war of the houses, the house of David versus the house of Saul. Cue our next scene this strange encounter at the pool of Gibeon. Abner uh, brings his men to the pool and Joab's men come out to meet them. And now, two things that you need to know about this. Uh, Firstly, Joab is the commander of David's army. Um, So we've got Abner and the house of Saul versus Joab and the house of David. That's the first thing to know. Secondly, uh, you have to know that the pool of Gibeon is well within Judah, uh, which is David's area. Abner has walked his troops in a long way. He's sabre-rattling. It's not all-out war, but it's a show of strength. Abner is playing politics here. And he proposes a fight, uh, a symbolic battle. Twelve of your men versus twelve of our men. And it's a symbol of the bigger battle that's going on, Uh, a picture of the battle for the nation of Israel. Uh, the 12 tribes, who's going to win? But it's a dark scene, isn't it? The young men grab each other by the head, pull each other back, and each one takes their sword and stabs the other in the side, and they all fall together. So it tells you all you need to know about war, doesn't it? Who wins? Nobody wins. Civil war and both sides lose. Abner's started something now and it's gone pear shaped on him. A symbolic battle turns into a real life one, and suddenly we're in a chase scene with Joab's brother Asahel chasing Abner. Uh, The thing about Abner is he's always trying to make a deal, so even while he's running away, he's trying to make a deal with Asahel behind him to call him off. Uh, But Asahel won't quit, and so Abner kills him stabbed in the stomach. He does manage to talk his way out of the next chase, though. Obviously, uh, Joab then pursues Abner. This is past where we read. Um, But read with me verse 26. Uh, This is Abner trying to call off Joab. And he says, verse 26, Abner called out to Joab, must the sword devour forever? Don't you realise that this will end in bitterness? How long? before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites. Must the sword devour forever? Uh, 2 Samuel is exposing the foolishness and the futility of the world's grab for power, the pointlessness of politics and violence. Uh, Myanmar's coup has seen a wave of protests in response, which... Uh, obviously brought a crackdown from the military trying to stamp them out and now we're left with 750 people who've died. And of course now uh, there's armed ethnic groups 
uh, rising up, mounting attacks back against the military. Nobody wins. Nobody wins. Uh, But Abner is only just getting started. Jump over to chapter 3 with me. Abner's next move, um, in all his kind of wheeling and dealing, uh, his next move is to take one of Saul's concubines. Um, At least he's accused of that, uh, but it does feel like a very Abner thing to do. So uh, let's let's go with that. Uh, It's a political move. It's a way of gathering power, moving factions to his side. The whole thing feels like an episode of Survivor, some kind of reality TV show with uh, groups and alliances and all these kind of moving parts. But when that's exposed, Abner flips, goes against what he's done, uh, trades allegiances and goes over to David. Have a look at Abner there in chapter 3, verse 12. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me, and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Whose land is it? It's Abner's land. That's what he's saying. It's my land. I'm in control of Israel. I'll bring the Israel's leaders uh, over to you. Uh, Abner, always the kingmaker, uh, always trying to grab power by the deal. And notice it's a deal that David is willing to make. It's an opportunity to unite the nation without bloodshed, without war. And so he makes peace with Abner. As you read through these chapters, that's the thing that stands out, that he sends Abner away in peace. David is the peacemaker here. And he makes the deal that will hand Israel over to him. How does someone rise to power? Uh, Firstly, politics, the deal. Um, But next, we see the sword. Must the sword devour forever? Yes, it certainly seems that way. Uh, Julius Caesar came to power in Rome uh, when the Senate uh, called him back from the field and and told him to come without his army. Uh, Spoiler, he didn't come without his army. He came with his army, came back to Rome, crushed his enemies and made himself dictator of Rome. And then two years later, on the Ides of March, he was assassinated uh, with literally uh, those men of the Senate lining up to stab him in the back. That's how he died. All who draw the sword will die by the sword. And the same thing's true here in 2 Samuel. Uh, Joab hasn't forgotten about how Abner killed his brother Asahel. And now... Now he finds Abner trying to move into his territory, making a deal with David, trying to take power within David's kingdom. And so look at what he does there in verse 27. A completely uh, dishonourable attack. Verse 27, chapter 3. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into an inner chamber as if to speak with him privately and there to avenge the blood of his brother Asahel. Joab stabbed him in the stomach and he died. All who draw the sword will die by the sword. Abner stabs Asahel in the stomach and just for revenge, Joab stabs Abner in the stomach. Must the sword devour forever? Yes, it never has its fill. Unless 
someone breaks the cycle, unless someone acts as peacemaker. See, now David is left in a huge mess. Uh, The man who was going to bring Israel across to him is dead, murdered by his own army commander. And so it's a complete disaster, right? You can think about the political fallout of it. Uh, It looks like we're straight back to civil war again. But David's different. He's not like Abner. He's not an underhanded double-crosser. And he's not like Joab. He's not fueled by revenge. He's the peacemaker. And so he mourns for Abner. And he manages to convince Israel that he had no part in Abner's murder. And so again, he emerges as the man of peace. How do you rise to power? Politics and violence. The deal and the sword. The story of Abner and Joab is the story of just the foolishness, the futility of of doing that, of politics and violence. Alliances will eat you alive and the sword will devour forever. And it's worth pausing for a moment just to reflect on our own uh, leaders of our age. Really, we shouldn't be surprised uh, when we find out that our leaders have a compromised past. Um, We can be disappointed But it shouldn't shock us, because that's how people rise to power. They're the the tools and the tactics that our world has to grab power. Making promises and going back on them, uh, being the strongest person in the room, bullying, coercion. That's what people use. We shouldn't be surprised or shocked by it. But these chapters have something different to say about how David rises to power. It's by the promise. Uh, If you have ears out for it as you read through these chapters, it's the reason that keeps coming up. Uh, We hear it on the lips of Abner himself. There in chapter 3, verse 17. Uh, Let's read it. Uh, Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, For some time now you've wanted to make David your king. Now do it. For the Lord promised David... For the Lord promised David, by my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Or later on, in chapter 5, verse 2, at the end of our section, we hear it on the lips of Israel's leaders. Here's what they say to David. They say, in the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. See, how does David rise to power? Not by the deal, not by the sword, but by the promise. Because God has said it will happen. God has promised to install his king for the blessing of his people, to shepherd them, to defeat their enemies. And so that's what happens God even uses Abner's king-making and Joab's violence uh, in order to bring about his plans uh, to cause David to rise to power. And so David's job is different. Uh, He doesn't need to use the tactics of the world. If he trusts God, he can seek peace and justice and trust that God is going to do what he promised. And David does do that, mostly. He's no Abner and he's no Joab, 
but he's not squeaky clean either. Uh, David isn't above some underhanded moves of his own. And I think that's what's going on in the sad story of Michal. Uh, Michal was Saul's daughter, and she was previously married to David, but that's not why he wants her back now. He wants her back as a pawn, something uh, like a political tool to cement his position within the house of Saul. And so we get this lonely picture of Michal, who keeps getting tugged back and forth for political gain. And this desperate, sad figure of her husband, uh, her new husband, Paltiel, who follows uh, behind her, weeping. It's a a picture of the brokenness that David has brought to this scene. David's no stranger to the deal or the sword. Yes, he's the king of the promise, but even he fails to escape the mud and the mark of just what it takes to rise to power in the world. He's no Abner, he's no Joab, he's better than them, but he's no Jesus. See, David's rise to power points forward beyond him to the one who will rise to power by trusting God's promise alone. See, how does Jesus rise to power? Well, uh, that scene that we read in Matthew 26 shows us uh, the approach that Jesus uses in his rise to power. Let's have a look. Um, You can flick there now. We're not going to be going back to to Samuel. Uh, Matthew 26. We'll pick it up from verse 52. Jesus has been uh, confronted in the garden, uh, one of his companions, Peter. uh, He wants to use the sword and uh, pulls it out. And here's what Jesus says. Verse 52. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? See that? Just like uh, with David, uh, Jesus looks to God's promise laid out in the scriptures. He looks to God's plan. He doesn't rise to power by making political deals with the Jewish leadership. He doesn't rise to power by the sword and taking it up to the Romans. Although he could have called down all of heaven's armies, he doesn't do that. He rises to power by trusting the word of his Father. And in God's plan, uh, God even uses uh, the political situation of the Jewish leaders and the violence of the Romans to install Jesus as king because Jesus rises to power by the cross, by seeking peace, by taking on himself all of the politics and the violence of those who are set against him. See, God has promised to install his king for the blessing of his people, to shepherd them and to defeat their enemies. And he does that. He's done it in Jesus. And he does it without cutting a deal, without raising a sword, but by making peace with his enemies on the cross. So, 
Uh, what does all this mean for us? How do we uh, connect that with our Christian lives uh, that we read, uh, that we live day by day? I think it's tempting at this point um, to, to turn and, and make these chapters about us and to think about how we rise to power. How am I going to get ahead as I start out in the workforce? How am I going to climb to the top at uni? And there's probably a lot we could learn about the dangers of worldly ambition, about how we climb the ladder, uh, probably a lot that we could learn about peacemaking in the world around us, and we do well to imitate Jesus in all of that. But actually, I think it's a chance for us to reflect on where we pin our hopes. These chapters are a chance for us to reflect on where we pin our hopes. See, it's possible for us to look to our leaders, political leaders or influential people in our culture, and think that somehow that's where the solution lies. That the solution to the situation in Myanmar... Uh, that will be resolved if we could just have the right people at the UN um, or that we can stamp out corruption in Australia if we just have the right Prime Minister or the right government. Now, don't get me wrong, we should work for change and things like that, but we can't pin our hopes on human leaders. See, our world's leaders are always compromised, uh, even the best of them, because they just have the same tactics at their disposal as everyone else. And their power is always limited. There's only ever so much they can do in the face of all the politics and the violence that's always going on around them. But God has raised Jesus to be king over all creation. He has installed his king and he's promised that he will return in power to set things right, to ultimately bring peace with every enemy destroyed. And 2 Samuel 2 to 5 is a reminder that God is able to deliver on that promise. That he will return his king as he has promised. Even through the the politics and the violence of the world that we see around us. And so we need to look to Jesus. We need to pin our hopes on him and on his return. When uh, when we read the news, uh, that's when this... Uh, chapter comes to bear. When we read the news, when we uh, scroll through it on our screen and we're dismayed by a military coup or a failed state, we need to know that the solution to that will be ultimately found in the return of King Jesus, the one that God has installed to bless his people. And when we hear of a culture of violence and aggression in our society... Um, then we need to know that that will ultimately be solved by the return of King Jesus. We need to pin our hopes on him, not on our worldly leaders who will ultimately disappoint us. We need to look to Jesus as the one who has defeated politics and violence by making peace when those things were focused onto him. Because we're the people who know that God has promised to install his king for the blessing of his people and he will surely do that.